Small satellites plus small launchers equals big business. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Two private space companies developing small launchers made big announcements last week. First, Rocket Labs said it's going public and unveiled a new rocket. Then, 3D printing company Relativity Space unveiled plans for a second launch vehicle. It's a busy time for the small launch market. We'll take a dive into the big business of small launchers with Anthony Colangelo, host of the Main Engine Cutoff podcast. But first, small rockets launch small satellites. Engineer and entrepreneur Jim Cantrell wants to mass manufacture these satellites and build a rocket of his own with his new company, Phantom Space. We'll take a look at the emerging market and growing use cases for small mass-produced satellites and the customers driving the industry's rapid development. The big business of small space tech. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. Before we jump into things, we've got an awesome event coming up next week. This podcast and radio show is celebrating its fifth anniversary. To celebrate, we're hosting a virtual conversation with former NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden and retired NASA astronaut Nicole Stott, and we want you there too. The event is Thursday, March 18th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, and it's free. Register for this Zoom event online at wmfe.org slash events. Turning to the big business of small satellites, we're joined by Jim Cantrell. He's a former SpaceX founding member and entrepreneur, currently the CEO and founder of Phantom Space. Jim, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So let's talk about the current state of satellite manufacturing. Your company aims to mass manufacture small satellites. Is that what's already happening in the industry now, or is this kind of a a new path forward? Well, it's it's somewhat new. Um, The first mass manufacturing of satellites was really Iridium, uh, which was a telephone system back in about uh, 2000 was when they launched. And uh, back then it was 100 and some odd satellites, which for this industry is definitely uh, mass manufacturing. You know, historically, uh, these devices have been put together one by one, very bespoke and uh, custom in each one individual. And uh, what we're finding today is that uh, what Iridium started so many decades ago has become somewhat more the norm and becoming the norm on uh, on an industrial scale that uh, this industry hasn't seen before. Last year, there were over 1,200 satellites launched. Um, a, a good majority of those were uh, built by SpaceX. Uh, they're Starlink satellites. There are a large number of even smaller CubeSats and somewhere between Starlink and CubeSats uh, being built in, in large numbers. So uh, this is a phenomenon, I think, that really kind of retraces the history of the PC versus the mainframe computer, if you're old enough to remember that. Uh, when I was in college, I would have to traipse through the snow in northern Utah to go up to the, the university and uh, use the computer uh, because there was only one on campus. And we had to all uh, go into the computer building where it was at and uh, fight over terminals uh, to get computer access time. And over over time, by the time I was in graduate school, uh, we had PCs in our homes, which we could do the same work and more uh, in our homes. And, and now what we see is swarms of these computers worldwide now do things such as transfer uh, 
cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. And you're starting to see the same phenomenon happening in, in satellites where people are discovering that uh, the, the large amount of satellites, albeit smaller, like uh, the microcomputers were to the mainframe, uh, can actually do a lot more. So it's a case of two plus two equals eight, really. Right. In this case. The technology is is developing so that it's smaller and easier to get them into space and, and utilize them. But I mean, is there is there anything else driving this need for mass manufacturing? I mean, what? Well, there's there's a couple of underlying reasons why it becomes possible, first of all. Um, and, and, you know, if you go back to Iridium, you know, that era, there was others who, uh, Craig McGraw, for example, McCaw, uh, wanted to um, uh, put, put up thousands of, of communication satellites, but it was you know, hundreds of billions of dollars by the end of where they, mm-hmm. where they figured out uh, what it would cost. And uh, so, so that kind of capital expenditure was prohibitive, uh, at least at the risk level of deploying that many satellites, uh, you know, that was just considered unrealistic. So the costs have come down immensely uh, for satellite uh, technology over the last 20 years in particular. And uh, it's made it possible to build lots of these for hundreds of thousands of dollars each for example. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's been an enabling factor. The other enabling factor is the size of the technology makes the launching of these much easier because everything's smaller and lighter and a launch generally uh, uh, is, is priced based on, uh, you know, how many kilos you're sending up and to where. So, so apart from that, you asked about use cases and yes, the use cases are expanding as people discover them. Um, it's a little bit of the chicken and egg here uh, until you really can afford to do these sort of things. You only have the dreamers that think of use cases for, you know, hundreds of satellites in orbit. And uh, once once it becomes a, a fiscal and, and technical reality like it is now, uh, people are actually starting to build these things. So so that's happening at the same time. The availability of capital for space uh, innovation has, has grown immensely and that we really owe that to SpaceX. So, mm-hmm. you know, when SpaceX came along uh, back in 2000, um, you know, Elon says, we're going to build a rocket ourselves. You could be thrown in an insane asylum for saying that back then, but now mm-hmm. we see it's the norm. Uh, this was once a purely state dominated uh, industry and, uh, you know, SpaceX proving that, you know, bright people with a, with a mission and, a, and an idea in mind that uh, they can do this themselves uh, really sucks the oxygen out of the room of, of the government industry. So, so that's created the pathway for, for others to fund these sort of things. So, so the use cases are, are you know, we don't know what they're going to be uh, mm-hmm. in the future, mainly telecommunication and earth observation today. But I feel like the space uh, economy is really much akin to the new world economy back in the 1500s when Spaniards stood on the shore of Spain watching the ships leave to the new world and come back full of gold. Uh, nobody had any clue what the new world would be some, you know, 400 years later. And here we are. Jim, you mentioned it, um, you know, you mentioned SpaceX lowering the cost of access to space. Um, and they kind of pave the way for some other small sat launchers that are coming online. I'm thinking, you know, Rocket Labs, Firefly, even SpaceX's rideshare program, there's Relativity Space. Um, is the emergence of having rides to space also driving the mass manufacturing industry or is it vice versa or is this happening in parallel? I guess, you know, how, how does the small sat launchers play into the development of this industry? 
It's a really great question. Um, if you, I guess, I guess one of the advantages I have is being a human barnacle in this industry. <laughs> I, I was around when a lot of this stuff was first discussed and then eventually implemented. Um, but you know, I was around, you know, when when, when rideshare was kind of uh, evolving mm -hmm. and it was somebody realizing, Hey, there's a little bit of extra space available on a, on a government launch. And, uh, you know, can we, can we stick a, a little CubeSat or something like that alongside, uh, the big, the big satellite. And this evolved, um, into what we call today rideshare. You know, that was uh, 30 years ago that when this really first started and it was really, again, done in the government for government sponsored payloads. Uh, the commercial side of it really took off about 15 years ago, uh, with something called the Esper ring, which was sponsored again by the government. Uh, the U.S. Air Force and uh, made it possible to stick larger size satellites as secondaries around sort of if you imagine a wedding ring below the satellite and each one of the diamonds would be a satellite stuck on instead of a diamond. That That's really what what the Esper ring looks like. So, so um, you know, the, the uh, commercial side of this has picked up on it and and has evolved to using a lot of Russian assets, although that's less the case now because they're simply running out of out of decommissioned ICBMs, uh, the, the Indians became very active in this, the Chinese, and then, and then finally the U.S. So what's emerging, though, is, uh, you know, SpaceX has, has really uh, perfected the large reusable launch vehicle, which really forms kind of one economic system where you're lifting, you know, primary satellites and then a whole bevy of, of, of rideshare satellites. On the other side of this, as you alluded to, is the small launchers. And uh, that becomes a really a second uh, economic competing system with, with the large reusable. And when you, when you mass manufacture, by mass manufacturing, incidentally, we're talking hundreds a year. We're not talking millions a year. If you go to the, the auto industry, you know, they're literally producing millions of cars a year. And I think we can argue today at a much better quality than ever before. And for a lower price for what you get, than ever before. So, so you see the power of the learning curve of this repetitive process that, that gets better and better technology to you, more reliable at a lower cost. And so that's the idea behind uh, the, the small launchers. We at Phantom are building a small launcher ourselves. That's one of our chief activities. And uh, we see, you know, companies like Rocket Lab who really are building the small launcher but aren't thinking about the mass manufacturing side of it to compete with SpaceX, they just announced that they're basically going to build a Falcon 9 size vehicle. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're going to move into that, that other economic system. So I, I, I'm very bullish personally about the idea of mass manufacturing small vehicles to cover what, what today is about a third of the market financially, but it's, it's about 80% of the number of satellites launched. Uh, we think over time, that's going to become at least half, if not maybe two thirds of the, of the dollars in the, in the market. And uh, there's going to be a need to service that. And, and what small satellites really truly need is not ride share. They, they need to actually go where they want, when they want, because mm -hmm. there's, uh, there's some hidden costs with ride share that most people don't think about. You, you can look at the price SpaceX charges you, but on the other hand, there's the cost of integrating onto that wedding ring, if you will. There's you know often up to a million dollars per satellite cost of engineering that particular solution because again, it's a unique situation every time. And then the second thing is the cost of delay. And then the third thing people don't think about is 
once you're up there, if you're not in the place you need to be, you have to have propulsion to move around. Mm-hmm. And that could cost upwards of a million dollars. So if we eliminate those costs and, and can match or, or go below the cost of rideshare, we think that's going to be a dominant uh, factor in, in the future. You mentioned these use cases are, are evolving and developing, but you mentioned communication and, and earth observation. And I've got to imagine that the U.S. government or you know, national security would have an interest in, in both of those use cases. Is, is the government leveraging this smaller technology and utilizing mass manufacturing of these satellites for communication and for Earth observation now? Or, or is this something that uh, they really should be looking at uh, for the future? So another great question, actually. Um, until very recently, the answer would be no, they haven't been utilizing it very much at all. Um, they've been a very slow adopter of this, uh, primarily, I would say, because of the risk involved with it. Uh, however, just today, I noticed when I scanned the news before I got on here, the Space Development Agency is procuring 150 more satellites for what they call their space communications layer. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're, they're going to procure it from a number of different vendors, so they don't have what they call vendor vapor lock. And, uh, you know, in the old days, you would pick Lockheed or Boeing or, or Northrop or somebody like that to build your constellation of satellites. The price would go from $10 billion to $40 billion, and then the program would get canceled. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, uh, I spent some of my career on, on those kinds of satellite constellations. Uh, so, so it was not so much mass manufacturing in the old days in the government system, but was a lot of, of single unit manufacturing spread over a lot of buildings, if you can imagine that. So it's sort of parallel building these bespoke satellites all at once. And so you didn't get the cost effect of it. What we're finding is now the government is starting to adopt the commercial practices and they're going to satellite providers that, you know, prior to this, you would never have expected to be, uh, uh, you know, providing uh, national defense systems. Uh, you know, primarily commercial companies. So like the iPhone, which, or the, 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 the microcomputer, which the government doesn't build, they buy, uh, you know, that's where all this industry goes eventually is to the government adopting the commercial solution mm-hmm. and then uh, using it in, the, in their particular use case. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been speaking with Jim Cantrell. He's the CEO and founder of Phantom Space. Jim, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. There is a lot more to that conversation. I'll post the entire interview on our website. Visit wmfe.org slash are we there yet? Still to come, the latest news from the small rocket launcher industry with main engine cutoffs, Anthony Colangelo. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? on WMFE, America's space station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Two private space companies developing small launchers made big announcements last week. It's a busy time for the small launch market, and to take a dive into the big business of small launchers, we're joined by Anthony Colangelo, host of the podcast Main Engine Cutoff. Anthony, welcome back. Oh, I'm so glad to be back. I was. This is the shortest time span between my uh, Are We There Yet appearances, so I'm very happy about that. There's so much going on. So two, so two developments last week. We've got uh, one from Rocket Labs, the other one uh, from Relativity Space. Let's Let's start... With Relativity Space first, uh, what's that company up to these days? Well, they up until now have been collecting a large amount of investment. They've got uh, an unbelievable amount of investment coming in over the last couple of years, leading up to their first launch of Terran One, which is their small launch vehicle that used to be their big launch vehicle, but now it is technically their smaller. Uh, it's about one ton to orbit, 
And they say that they're still on track for a mid to late 2021 launch of that. They've been doing a lot of stage testing. They recently showed off some pictures of a printed tank that they took out back of their headquarters and did some buckle testing on that. So it seems like they're making progress there. And then they announced uh, a week or two ago, they announced Terran R, which is this much larger vehicle. They say it's fully reusable, about 20 tons to orbit. Uh, So very close to the Falcon 9 level of lift. Um, And there really was not a lot of details in that announcement, which flummoxed me to some extent as to why they would be putting a, a very light announcement out when they're still yet to get to the launch pad with their first vehicle. Uh, it it threw me off. I'll just say that. All right, you used a different word in your podcast, but we'll go with we'll go with threw you <laughs> off. Um, I, what do, I mean, what do we know? I mean, there there really wasn't too many details released about this new rocket, but um, Tim Ellis, the 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 head of the company, did speak with Michael Sheets from CNBC about this. What do we know? Uh, basically that it's a bigger vehicle. It's 20 tons to orbit. They say it's going to be, uh, able to launch from the launch sites that they are building out. So they're, they're one of the rare companies that have, uh, facilities both on the East and West coast, which is, those are slim pickings because, uh, Cape Canaveral down in your way, there's a lot of launch sites available there. So it's not a huge surprise that you can get some space on the range, but out Vandenberg air force base, uh, there are not that many launch sites available. A lot of it is taken up with, Department of Defense missions, the Missile Defense Agency has a large portion of the base, much touchier out there. So uh, the fact that they were able to land a launch site out there as well is uh, is pretty big. So uh, they say that this will be interchangeable with those two launch sites. Uh, the, the visualization they released makes it look like it's roughly Falcon 9 shaped and sized. They say fully reusable. And that is, if anything in here is exciting, fully reusable should be the thing because that indicates that they're looking at not only the first stage like Falcon 9 does, where it comes back and lands and can be flown again, but the upper stage as well. And if you ask me, upper stage reusability is kind of the holy grail of of launch right now because that's where you really make a difference uh, in launch price. When you're throwing away upper stages like that, you're going to keep your launch price at a a higher barrier than it would be if you can get the whole thing back uh, and fly a significant amount of the vehicle time and time again. And if they're able to crack that nut, that would be a pretty big entry to the market. But they didn't tell us any timing. They didn't really tell us any of the details. There is some uh, engine overlap here. So the the upper stage engines on both the Terran 1 vehicle and Terran R are going to be the same. They're working on a new engine for the first stage. So I think right there, that tells you that they're probably looking a couple of years down the line, uh, maybe 2025 range, considering they still have yet to get uh, Terran 1 up and running here. Mm Mm-hmm. I know that details are fuzzy. There, the the image is just kind of the the silhouetted uh, image of you know a, a confidential informant uh, talking to <laughs> yeah, sixty totally. minutes kind of thing. Um, but let let's hypothetical here. Uh, what happens if a, a system like this does come online? It's got those you know those two launch facilities that are 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 prime launch sites. Uh, it can deliver you know, this particular amount of payload into orbit um, directly competes with, with Falcon 9. What, what does this mean for the launch business if this starts flying in the next five, seven years? You, you mentioned a good point there that it's directly competing with Falcon 9. And, you know, that's, that's what everyone's going for these days. But really, no one is doing it yet. Uh, no one is putting price pressure on SpaceX at, right, at this point in time. SpaceX is able to fly the Falcon 9 
there were some leaked numbers that put it around 28 or 30 million dollars as an internal cost so that means anything above that is profit to spacex uh, or revenue at least and uh there's an unknown figure there of what is the floor of falcon 9 is it 20 million dollars that they could actually fly that for eventually or are they already there at 28 or 30 because that says they're never really going to drop the launch price to anything below 35 40 million dollars and you know ula the biggest competitor right now flying atlas 5 and delta 4 but soon to be vulcan they're still much more expensive on a per launch price which means that spacex has no incentive to lower the prices anymore so yes it's great that spacex is flying nasa missions cheaper it's great they're flying u.s air force and space force missions cheaper but until someone threatens that price they have no pressure and no desire to lower the price anymore or else that's just eating into their profit so something like terran r if it is significantly cheaper to manufacture to fly to reuse then spacex is going to have some real competition on their hands and we might actually see that you know duplicative uh, effort of lowering launch costs and i don't I don't really get excited about launch costs dropping until there's at least two people that are really competing heavily for that. And so far, our you know our hopes and dreams for that have hinged on New Glenn, which just kind of keeps slipping into the future. And if some of these smaller options that yet still competitive options could come online in the mid-2020s, I think that could be a really interesting moment for the industry to say like, oh, wow, now we're really going to focus on dropping these launch costs, maybe even lopping a, you know, a zero off the end of the launch figure. Mm-hmm. Some of your skepticism with relativity is, there, is that there really isn't much hardware yet. They haven't put even their smaller rocket on a pad. They've been just testing, you know, buckle testing some of that stuff out back. Uh, but a company that did make an announcement last week that does have hardware flying uh, is Rocket Labs. Tell me a little bit about um, this news and why this was some of the news that you were more excited about last week. Yeah, I'm, I'm much more excited about this because it feels a lot more concrete they they did this by way of a very large press rollout. They're also going public, which is a whole other part of this announcement as well. Uh, they're getting a huge infusion of cash by by way of that. It's, they're getting about $745 million uh, once this all closes. And they're going to use a significant portion of that to build out this Neutron launch vehicle. Uh, this one, they say, is about an 8-ton to orbit range. So smaller than uh, than these other two vehicles we've been talking about, Falcon 9 and Terran R. But in a range that they think fits almost all of the payloads that are they're interested in launching these days, um, there there you know used to be if you roll the clock back ten or twenty years, all of the satellites were going to geostationary orbit. That put a kind of uh, size class that you needed to hit to be really competitive in the commercial market. Mm-hmm. These days, it's all about constellations. Everything's going to low Earth orbit in big bulks of you know ten or twenty satellites at a time, or in SpaceX's case, sixty at a time. Uh, and I. I think they see a lot of the action on the commercial side and then on the Department of Defense side as well in these low Earth orbit constellations, and they built their vehicle around that. So eight tons might sound kind of strange, uh, but when you do the math for what does it take to launch a single uh, plane of your constellation, that's the figure they targeted there. Mm -hmm. They say this one also has a reusable first stage. They're going to land it on a drone ship or platform or something out at sea, uh, similar to what SpaceX is doing. It it doesn't doesn't sound. I talked to Peter Beck last week on on my podcast. It doesn't doesn't sound like the upper stage reuse is part of the initial plans, um, but he didn't rule that out long term. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
But I think a company like them that has shown a track record of success with Electron, uh, they are kind of the darlings of the Department of Defense right now. There's a lot of interest from the Air and Space Forces to and other secretive agencies like National Reconnaissance Office has been flying on Electron a lot. They are building this in the U.S. They are launching it from Virginia. There is no surprise if, you know, the, the Space Development Agency or the U.S. Space Force really goes all in on Neutron here to launch some of their constellations they have in mind. Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned they're also going public, which I thought was an interesting part of, of the news. Um, first of all, talk about what this process is. This is a little bit different than kind of doing a, an IPO that a lot of tech companies do. Um, what do we know about it? And, and in talking to Peter Beck, do we have any ideas to, as to why they went this route and not some traditional way of going public? Yeah, so this this new thing is called a Special Purpose Acquisition Company, or SPAC. I like to say you can't spell space without SPAC because there's, I think every week this year, there has been a different company announcing that they are going public by way of SPACs. A lot of them have been companies that are not creating revenue yet. They are not even launching their hardware yet. One of the biggest is Virgin Galactic, host of issues there that would be a whole other podcast. Uh, a lot of satellite companies or space transportation companies that haven't flown anything uh, but now we're starting to see some like Rocket Lab, there's one called Black Sky, that are established companies operating satellites or launch vehicles that are doing this mechanism. And the reason that they're drawn to it, and this is what Peter Beck told me, was that it is a faster way to go public than what it takes to go public otherwise. And per Peter Beck, if you trust his word on this, they were working on going public for a while, and it's a very slow, drawn-out process. Uh, but then it sounded like they started to get some interest in in this SPAC the way it works is that you create a company, you list it on the stock exchange, so you're already a public company, you have a huge amount of funding, and you're able to acquire a different company and then convert your ticker to, you know, I think in this case it was RKLB or something like that. Uh, so they're getting acquired by an already public company. By way of that, they become public. Uh, and in this case, uh, this isn't the case with all SPACs, but they're getting the cash from the acquisition, but then there's going to be an, an initial injection of another $300 million or something like that that uh, ends up giving them $745 million uh, at the end. Now, to date, Rocket Lab has only, uh, it says, I say only, but they've only raised 200 and something million dollars um, to to get where they are at, which is almost 20 flights flown, hundreds of satellites launched. And they have been very effective at using that. And that's that's crazy, right? That's that's not a lot of cash. It's not, especially when you consider they've built an entire launch vehicle. They built a launch site in New Zealand. They built a launch site in the U.S. They have done so much. And, you know, t- to compare it to Relativity, last November, uh, two Novembers ago, I guess. No, last November. Man, time. Mm-hmm. Ah, two Novembers. What's time? I don't even know anymore. <laughs> Ooh, we're almost out of the time warp, but we're not yet. Uh, anyway, the, the last time they raised money was $500 million. And that was in addition mm-hmm. to several rounds before that. So Relativity is already taking on, you know, five times as much money as Rocket Lab to this point has. And granted, different companies, different ways of working, different, different, you know, everything really from the technical foundations up. But the fact that Rocket Lab has done so much on $200 million, now you think, okay, they just got $700 million on their on their books, plus a lot of credibility to raise money beyond that. There's a very bright future in that company. More info on the podcast is at MainEngineCutoff.com. I also spoke with Anthony about SpaceX's recent Starship test launch and the development of that program. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast feed for that extra audio I'll drop later this week. 
Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. More space news online at wmfe.org slash space. Stay connected on Twitter or Instagram or at AWTY space or on Facebook. Search for Are We There Yet podcast. And if you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's space station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our intern is Kirk Churchill. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.